Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Woman of the Year. doing. I hope this episode finds you well. The weather is changing. It's getting warmer out there. And so I hope that if you are in need of a cool down, you can find a place that's nice and cool. A place that will put a smile on your face. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Oh boy. Uh, So let's talk. Let's talk. Patty, you look fantastic. Always. uh, You're an amazing person. Oh, Patty, you're so fantastic. I checked out the book for Woman of the Year. I checked it out from the public library, as well as the books for a musical adaptation of The Yearling and a monster musical parody called, I swear to God, this is the title. I'm sorry, the bridge is out. You'll have to spend the night. Patty, I'm sorry. I... I always want to say you look wonderful, and I know that that's just sort of... That's a very... Is that a bland compliment? I don't know. Now I feel dumb. I feel silly. Uh, You're an amazing producer. You're an amazing engineer. You're so prepared. So thank you for being so professional. Thank you for being, honestly, my friend. I consider you... We didn't really know each other until we were paired together for the purposes of recording and releasing this show. And over the course of these, you know, 20-plus episodes, I really... I've, I've come to think of you as a close friend, and I hope you're nodding. Thank you very much. I am very happy to be working with you each and every week. And I don't mean to reduce our interactions to, you look fantastic, babe. <laughs> so... She's she's giving me the the I think is that a that peace sign I think is just meant to indicate like you're cool bro so I'm yeah nodding great uh, so I do, I don't mean to uh, derail this opening segment let's talk about I'm sorry the bridge is out you'll have to spend the night I did sit down with the yearling for about a page and a half that was garbage it was written in some sort of don't you just hate it when scripts are written in some sort of faux hillbilly mountain people speak where every word is like fucking it's like Mark Twain on acid just every word is mangled and misspelled to the point where you can barely read it, much less say it. I can't even imagine doing a cold read of it off, uh, you know, out of nowhere. That that script is garbage. So the yearling garbage couldn't get through a page and a half of it. But the latter, the, again, the title, I'm sorry, the bridge is out. You'll have to spend the night. I threw it away from my own body <laughs> in mild disgust. I threw it to the opposite side of the room. Uh, this script was co-written by the guy who wrote the song Monster Mash, and it's from the 60s, but it has a definite sub-Rocky horror show vibe. I'm certain it's never produced these days and frankly I think that's a good thing I also checked out (laughs) I didn't check this out I sort of gave it a scan I I didn't walk out of the building with this but I did look at the book for a show called Cinderella Meets the Wolfman 
But even I have my limits. Even I, John Bernasek, you know, engaging with free material that the library is making widely available, even I have my limits. Uh, some of these scripts, at the, this is at the Harold Washington branch of the library. If you go to the eighth floor, the amount of scripts for shows that you've never even heard of, <laughs> shows that have been produced in 20, 30, 40 years, it's kind of wonderful. I love the fact that there is at least one spot you can go to, you can look at these scripts and think to yourself, well, this is a nightmare. <laughs> But the point is that we don't get rid of them. We have to keep them in the historical canon. We have to keep them there. You know, put them under, put them in the ground, but mark mark the grave so that you can go back if you need to. If you bring a shovel, because some you never know, you might need to unearth that grave. Might have to unearth the grave. Okay, so that's the opening segment. That's all I have to say for the opening segment. Let's talk about the show facts. Show me the show facts. Have you ever seen that commercial with a little fox? Show me the car facts. How about show me the show facts? So anyway, uh, (laughs) this week's subject is, of course, Woman of the Year. Woman of the Year was a 1981 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on March 29th, 1981 at the Palace Theater and ran for 770 performances. Very strong run. The book was written by Peter Stone. The music was by John Kander. The lyrics were by Fred Ebb. I believe this is the first Kander and Ebb show that we have discussed here on the podcast. Am I out of my mind? I don't think I'm out of my mind. The director of Woman of the Year was Robert Moore. The musical director was Donald Pippen. Think about the sun, Donald. The choreographer, uh, this is a musical staging by credit, okay? So we're, we're nixing the term choreographer. We're going with musical staging by Tony Carmoli. That voice was reductive. Oh boy, I apologize. Set design, Tony Walton. Lighting design, Marilyn Renegal. Costume design, Theone V. Aldridge. And the original Broadway cast included Lauren Bacall. I'll just say this, Lauren Bacall was eventually replaced on Broadway after she left the show by Raquel Welsh, who was then replaced by Debbie Reynolds near the end of the show's run. Barbara Eden of I Dream of Jeannie fame was the lead for the show's 1984 national tour. The rest of the cast included Harry Guard. Dino, Tom Avera, Roderick Cook, Marilyn Cooper, Rex Everhart, Ivan Harum, Rex Hayes, Grace Keegi, Darren Kelly, Lawrence Rakin, Jamie Ross, and Gary Vici. Tony Nods. The show was, of course, nominated for Best Musical. It was also nominated for Best Direction of a Musical. That nomination went to Robert Moore. And these are the awards that it won. It won Best Book of a Musical, Peter Stone, Best Original Score, John Kander and Fred Ebb, Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical, Lauren Bacall, and Best Best performance by a featured actress in a musical, Marilyn Cooper. So, in total, six nominations, four wins. Let's talk about that plot, baby. Uh, the lead character as played by Lauren Bacall, right? That's who we that's who we start with. We open on Tess Harding. Tess Harding is an incredibly successful, widely known figure in the field of broadcast journalism. As the show opens, she is mere moments away from accepting a Woman of the Year award, but the honor is tainted by painful memories of her husband, Sam Craig. As she takes the stage and begins her acceptance speech, Her thoughts drift to how the two originally met. We flash back and find Tess arriving at the set of Early Bird, a television show she co-anchors with the hair-obsessed Chip Salisbury. We're introduced to Tess's secretary, Gerald, as well as Helga, her pointedly German maid. Literally, the joke with Helga seems to be that she is German. That's it. Tess settles in at the anchor desk with seconds to spare before going live, and after going 
going live, she delivers an editorial piece on the funny pages, daily comic strips, if you will. Specifically, she bemoans the artistic bankruptcy of daily comic strips and questions why anyone would ever take them seriously as art. Coincidentally, this piece is viewed by Sam Craig and his pals, who are all cartoonists and take great offense at Tess's takedown. Sam retaliates by satirizing Tess in his comic strip, which stars a sarcastic feline named Crazy Cat. That's KK, Crazy Cat. This sets off a minor media frenzy because it's 1981 and apparently there isn't a lot going on in the news. Tess is furious, but when Sam shows up at her office to apologize, she is instantly attracted to him and offers to pay for dinner. Thus begins a whirlwind romance that culminates in the pair impulsively deciding to get hitched. Everything is fine at first, but Sam quickly begins to resent Tess's crowded schedule. For their part, Gerald and Helga resent Sam, presumably because they have been tending to Tess's needs for years now and do not want to be replaced. Tensions come to a head on the night Tess is scheduled to accept the Woman of the Year award, with a particularly nasty argument causing Sam to leave her only moments before she walks on stage to deliver her acceptance speech. For the record, there is an exchange in both the film on which this is based and the musical in which Sam says something along the lines of just tell everyone I left to do something important. He's, he's walking out on her to which Tess hastily replies oh who, who would ever believe you have something important to do. She cuts herself off you know right towards the tail end of that. She cuts herself off in a bit of horror. She's sort of struck by how nasty she is being in that moment but, but this is long after she has clearly said what is truly on her mind and so Stan, Sam storms out on her in anger. Depressed and confused Confused, Tess finds help from a few unlikely sources, the first being a Russian ballet dancer named Alexei Petrokov. Alexei defects to the United States in the first act of the show, but in the second act, he announces a desire to move back to Russia and be with his wife, insisting love is more important to him than his career. Tess then travels to the suburbs to see Larry Donovan, her ex-husband. While there, she bonds with Larry's current wife, Jan. Jan admires Tess for being so well-traveled and famous, but Tess is in awe of Jan's ability to maintain a home. Inspired, Tess appears on the Early Bird program to announce she is giving up her career to be a dedicated housewife, and to prove it, she tries baking a cake on air. It's weird, and it's clunky. As the cake basically implodes in her face, it's oozing out of the oven, they, they bring out this kitchen set. They make this big deal about, oh, we had to bring out the old kitchen set. I, I don't know. It's, it, it is sweaty. I'll just say that right now. Uh, there, there are a few components in this plot that are just a wee bit sweaty, even for, a, even for a romantic musical comedy. So as the cake explodes, Sam appears on set and in front of the cameras to call Tess out for being a phony. He doesn't believe she actually wants to quit her job, and he doesn't want her to quit her job. What he wants is to be heard and taken seriously as an equal partner. The two vow to work it out, as the cake presumably consumes the entire studio. It's eating everybody. You know how normally you eat a cake? Well, this cake's eating you, baby. Get on your back, because it's about to eat you out. 
Literally, though, it's going to eat you. For the purposes of this episode, I watched the original 1942 film starring Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn. Key differences from its stage adaptation include how in the film, Sam is a sports columnist, not a cartoonist, and Tess is a global news columnist working at the same paper. So they both work at the same paper. And one of Tess's contacts isn't a flamboyant Russian ballet dancer, but rather a doctor fleeing from a deadly fate at the hands of the Nazis. The specter of World War II makes the story feel a lot heavier in the film. Not not a lot, only slightly, but there's definitely that specter of World War II hanging in the air. And, uh, oh, did I mention there is a Greek refugee boy that Tess tries to adopt but treats like a pet? Essentially, a boy, Sam, returns to the refugee center. Sam takes the boy back because he sort of understands that Tess is not really fit at this point to be a parent. This is not really a home for this kid. So he takes the kid back to the refugee center. And then Tess, out of pure frustration and anger, tries to get the kid back, tries to yank him out of the refugee center for a second time. And this kid, they have this whole conversation in Greek without subtitles, and he basically tells her to fuck off that he doesn't want to be with her at this point. And then he runs up the stairs, and then we never hear about that kid again. It's such a weird, wonky, talk about sweaty, sweaty aspect of the film's plot. Uh, Yeah, it's bonkers, and I can see why they cut it when adapting it for the stage. I also read, as I said at the top of the show, the 1981 book for Woman of the Year, the musical. This is written by Peter Stone. There is a note up front, uh, at the front of this script, this book, about how it reflects changes made to the show uh, after its national tour. There is one key change in terms of the score that I noticed, which we'll get to later, but beyond that, I'm not sure what was tweaked or tossed out. It doesn't help that I was not alive in 19 1981 to see the original show. It's true. The New York Times review of the original production, which heaps a lot of praise on Lauren Bacall, but is otherwise mixed, makes a point of how labored the initial meet-cute setup is, and I have to agree. Though it doesn't really bother me, I can I can acknowledge that it's a little sweaty without it really getting to me. I mean, this is a romantic musical comedy, after all, and we gotta get these kids together somehow, don't we? Uh, the film's setup is much less sweaty. Sam overhears Tess on a radio quiz show that is playing at his favorite watering hole, during which she makes a a very casual crack about baseball seeming inconsequential in light of World War II. Uh, This offends Sam, and he writes a column at the paper calling Tess out for denigrating a pastime that helps make America worth fighting for and enjoying. It definitely feels more organic than Tess randomly bashing comics the second Sam happens to turn on a television. That's That's, I didn't really get into that. Sam brings a television set into a room where all of his cartoonist pals are playing poker, he plugs the television in and says, I gotta watch that Tess Harding. I never miss her program. And the second he turns on that TV, she's basically like, fuck cartoons. Cartoons are stupid. (laughs) The timing is perfect. But again, it's musical comedy, so I'm willing. Here's some slack show. I'm giving you some slack. I will say I'm kind of confused as to what Tess is so worried about when it comes to comic strips. We're still talking about the book, the script. Uh, She talks about them invading our museums and how that's tacky, but like, again, what are we so concerned about? Tess admits (laughs) she admits that she wrote this op-ed on the way to the studio from the airport in the back of a limousine. So you get the sense that she's kind of making up shit to be angry about on air. Very relevant in 2019. Have you seen Twitter? There's a running joke in the book that a 
implies the early bird program is constantly booking Pia Zadora, and we're never really told why, which I I, I appreciate the mystery surrounding that. Uh, Tess's co-anchor, Chip Salisbury, which I haven't said this yet, but that is a delightfully stupid name for a musical comedy character, Chip Salisbury. Uh, Chip Salisbury is constantly hyping Pia Zadora's appearances while on the air. It's one of many topical references that don't exactly pop and fizz in 2019, but I can't appreciate a Pia Zadora hat tip. She was the star of this film from 1984 called Voyage of the Rock Aliens. Now, true, I've never seen the film, and that's mainly because it's not really widely available at all. The song, There's a song from the soundtrack called When the Rain Begins to Fall. It's a duet she sings with Jermaine Jackson. produce the M3 series, Voyage of the Rock Aliens is 100% on my to-do list. If I have to get a bootleg, so be it. So Alexei Petrokov, the Russian ballet dancer, isn't nearly as fleshed out as you'd like for a comedic supporting character, I'll say that much. His primary function is to inspire Tessa's decision to leave her job. Alexei goes back to Russia to be with his wife, renouncing his career in dance to put all of his focus on love. But this is six months after he publicly defected from from Russia. Russia? Did he initially abandon his wife? Why is it assumed he can return to Russia without incident or reprisal or blowback? Russia's kind of known for holding a grudge, right? Peter Stone seems to understand just how thin all of this plot is that surrounds Alexei because he has Tess openly question it for maybe five seconds of stage time before moving on. But what Stone doesn't try to follow up on, and this is much more egregious to me than what I just described, is a moment from Act 1 that clearly implies Alexei is gay or maybe bisexual. Alexei flirts with Sam. It's essentially a blackout moment for the scene in which it takes place. Maybe we're supposed to assume Alexei is bisexual. I don't know. But I'm not willing to give Peter Stone and 1981 that much progressive credit. In that regard, no, I'm not really giving you a lot of slack when it comes to this very easy, cheap, gay joke. I'm fine with the character being thin, but you have to give an actor a consistent set of characteristics and gags to play if they're going to be engaged and successfully funny on stage. There's no way every audience member wasn't like me and sitting in the audience thinking, wait, but isn't he gay? What happened? He's going back to Russia to be with his wife? That doesn't really track. That seems stupid. Meet cutes are one thing, but I draw a line at gay erasure, Mr. Stone. There are also two FBI agents who are presented as being in pursuit of Alexei in the first act, but they completely 
completely vanish after appearing in a single scene. Don't give me hapless wacky FBI agents if you have nothing for them to do, Mr. Stone. The protracted cake-baking finale reads as flat on the page, so I have to assume everyone involved assumes you have a Lucille Ball-level comedian on your hands when mounting this show, because if she can't bring a lot of innate comedic skills to the table, a lot of natural charm, this cake bit is going to land like a brick. But this kind of relates to how I feel about the book overall. It doesn't scream rip-roaring comedy when you hold it in your hands. It's obvious everyone across the board would have to bring their A-game to, you know, give it real vim and verve. I also listened to the 1981 original Broadway cast album, and of course I watched the 1981 Tony's performance in which Lauren Bacall and the ensemble sing the song One of the Boys from the score, but we'll get to that sooner than you think, because right now, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the score, that Kendernib score, baby. Sam Craig, wherever you are, listen, you son of a bitch. Listen to that. This gracious, well-known public figure we've admired for so long. Sam Craig, wherever you are, you arrogant, ill-tempered, brutish, insensitive, chauvinist son of a bitch. Listen to that. Her past and the many fields of her Atmosphere. Fifty bucks a plate for the woman of the year. Look alive, more keep the day as clear while they all applaud for the woman of the year. Before I go deep into the show's opening number, which is, of course, Woman of the Year, I would be remiss if I didn't point out how this is the second film-to-stage musical adaptation Lauren Bacall starred in that opens with her at an awards ceremony, the other being 1970s Applause, which is an adaptation of the film All About Eve. True in Applause, Bacall is presenting the award, and in Woman of the Year, she is receiving the award. But it's strange all the same. It's Doctor Strange, I tell you. In the first volume of his collected lyrics, Sondheim talks about how he really wanted the song Officer Krupke from West Side Story to end with the lyrics, Gee, Officer Krupke, fuck you! He really wanted to fuck you at the end. He wanted to be the first composer to get that lyric on stage. Just a really flat fuck you. This clearly did not work out for him, so it's nice to know that by 1981, the lead in a musical could shout, Son of a bitch! 
twice during the opening number. This is the 80s, baby. We say all the words now. I realized I was very sensitive when it came to some of the language in our most recent Snow Club subject, American Psycho. But it's one thing when Patrick Bateman, who is a serial murderer, uses homophobic slurs. It's quite another when Lauren Bacall sassily says son of a bitch. The word bitch overall. We're finally starting to have a conversation, finally, about how that word just needs to go. But at the same time, Lauren Bacall gives it like a really, really vampy, campy sting. And so I guess I'm being a bit of a hypocrite. Maybe I'm showing my diva bias a little bit. I do enjoy Lauren Bacall as an old school Ethel Merman style barking diva. So I'm being a hypocrite is what I'm saying. I admit it. I admit it. I wouldn't use the word myself, but when I hear Lauren Bacall, when I hear her say it, I, I just sort of lean back and go, ah, that Lauren McCall, she's so sassy. <laughs> she's such an old school dame. So that's, that's again, my bias and hypocrisy coming out. The song does a very good job of showcasing its star and what she will be bringing to the table, namely the vocal power and bravado of a foghorn. Now, I in no way mean this as a slight, but Lauren McCall has a character voice through and through. We can't deny that. And you'll either be on board from the outset or find yourself bolting for the exit within seconds. McCall's style would never fit into the modern Broadway soundscape, I don't think, which makes her a gem worth treasuring. There are a million singers who can provide a crisp, clean sound, but only the likes of Bacall can bark and make it worth the price of a Broadway ticket. It's worth, you know, I'll, I'd give my money to it, I'll say that much. This is the song that was clearly changed before the book was published. So there were changes made for the national tour. This is the big change that I noticed. Uh, in the book, there are lyrics uh, in which Tess repeats the sentiment that she does not need a husband, that no woman in the audience that she is speaking to needs a husband to feel fulfilled or successful. It's a stronger push of feminist ideals, but it's kind of undone later when Tess offers to abandon her career if it means being able to stay with Sam. We had a long way to go in terms of the bigger conversation is what I'm saying. We still do, clearly. Uh, but, you know, if you want to look at it from a kinder angle, I, I would think of it in this way. She tells the audience, and I think she would stand up for this statement at the end of the show as well. Uh, but at the beginning of the show, she says, you know, you don't need a husband. And I don't think, I don't think Tess wants a husband. She doesn't think that she needs a husband to survive, thrive, be successful. But she does want to have Sam. She wants to have Sam be her husband. Uh, that's the difference between sweating it out and desperately seeking, you know, a body. You know, it's that it's that joke from Company. You know, you should get married to somebody, not somebody. And I think that's what Tess is. Uh, she's pushing that idea at the top of the show here. You know, don't don't be with someone because society makes it seem as if that's the better position to be in. Don't do it because you think it'll be it'll make you feel more comfortable or more secure because it's not going to work out for you. And that's what's happening in that moment when she's giving that. That speech, she's having an internal monologue about how hard this has been for her and for Sam. This relationship has been very rocky and tumultuous. There's been high highs and very low lows. And it's because they haven't been able to get on the same page and have a real conversation. Uh, and, you know, that at the beginning of the show, she still has ways before she can realize all of this. But that's the journey, isn't it? That's the journey. We find a particular person and we invest in that particular person. And if it doesn't work out, we still survive. We still march on because, as I like to say, we are enough on our own, right? We are complete. We are enough. So thank you very much. That's uh, uh, that's all I have to say about the opening number. Let's talk about when you're right, you're right. I mean, even in my personal life, I've always made the right decision. 
When I married Larry, I was 18, he was 20. We were both journalism students in Missouri, and all he wanted to be was William Allen White. I had a job on a local TV station. I was only doing the weather, but some network executive happened to see me one night. So I knew I had to go to New York, and Larry would be happier editing a newspaper in Colorado or somewhere, so it was time for a break. And though we both still cared for each other, he had to go his way. I had to go mine. So the split up was not a mistake. Now Larry's remarried and blissful out west. And I love my career. It was all for the best. I was right. That's right. I was perfectly right. Right. My instincts were valid and strong. Right. That's right. When you're right, you're right. Right. I know when I'm right. It's remarkably rare that I'm wrong. Right. That's, That's right. right. Goodness gracious, I could easily tuck in and listen to Lauren Bacall toxing her way through 20 verses of this patter. I put my chin in my hand, I lean forward, and I think, just talk, Miss Bacall. Talk to your heart's content. Do you want more coffee, Miss Bacall? Don't get up, Miss Bacall. I'll get it. You just keep talking, Miss Bacall. She makes everything that comes out of her mouth sound simultaneously sophisticated and totally laid back and casual. Her voice advertises experience. I love it. It's delightful. And I know it's not much of a joke, but I do enjoy Gerald here and his literal yes man attitude. It runs throughout the entire number. It's very repetitive. They keep striking that same note, but I like the repetition there. Look, cats, don't be a sap. She'll walk all over you. She'll have you altered. Yeah, stop being so catty. I know what I'm doing. No, you don't. Remember what you said? Do you remember? Once you vowed you'd never fall again, disallowed, braving that squall again. Now you're cowed, giving your all again. Dumb. True. So what else is new? So What Else Is New is a number that is available on YouTube. The video quality, because the footage is so old, the video quality is beyond awful. It's it's very frustrating, as this is the number in which Crazy Cat, the cartoon feline that Sam, you know, produces as part of his comic strip every day, uh, this Crazy Cat appears in animated form and sings alongside Sam. I want to see that cartoon cat, damn it. The book makes it clear there are several animated sequences that play out on a screen, a rare bit of spectacle in what is otherwise a very meat and potatoes, earthbound Broadway show. As a fan of animation, I want to see the cat. In my mind, Crazy Cat looks like Nintendo's Mr. Game & Watch, but with, like, cat ears, you know? The Nintendorks know what I'm talking about. But enough about my theories in regards to Crazy Cat and his potential... <laughs> his, poten- his potential resemblance to Mr. Game & Watch. Let's talk about one of the boys. I'm one of the girls who's one of the boys Enjoying the jokes and the smokes and the noise Wanna go fishing? Well, hand me the reel. I made you in poker, so shut up and deal. I'm one of the gals who's one of the guys. So put up your dupes and I'll flatten your eyes. In spite of the dress, the finesse, and the boys, I'm one of the girls. I find it highly suspicious how the 9 to 5 musical opens its second act with a song bearing the exact same title. Allison Janney is singing about being one of the boys. Seems suspicious is all I'm saying. Let's get a little... You know what? We have time. Let's just hear a little bit of that number. I'll take this job and love it 
Suspicious, huh? But while we're on the subject, let's get a Woman of the Year revival starring Allison Janney. Let's work on the book. Let's make the book a little tighter, you know, but let's give this vehicle, uh, let's make this a vehicle, I should say, for Allison Janney. She certainly feels like a descendant of Hepburn and Bacall, right? I don't think that's crazy. All three of them being these incredibly sharp, brash as hell, but dry as toast, vocally distinct, take no shit actors we love to love. I would pay to have each of these women slap me in the face. No lie. I realize it's not wise to look too deeply into the psychological underpinnings of what is a fluffy musical comedy. I've said that about 17 times. But I like turning over the idea that Tess as a character is this chameleon who can naturally adapt to any setting in which she finds herself. Her career depends on it, right? She treats everyone like a potential interview subject, researching their backgrounds and flattering their egos so as to gain their confidence. This is what allows her to so quickly bond with Sam's cartoonist buddies, and they bring her into the fold during this number, one of the boys. But when it comes to Sam himself, her husband, Tess can't seem to get on his wavelength, often to the point where she literally cannot hear what he has to say. As a result, Sam winds up feeling like a footnote in the grand scheme of her life. Then again, Sam knew what he was getting into when he agreed to marry this universe's equivalent of Barbara Walters, so I don't feel too bad for him. Even when the show tries to make up for his carping and whining by having him insist Tess shouldn't give up her career, it comes off less like a defensive gender equality and more like one final attempt at controlling Tess's narrative. You know, you choose to quit. No, I say you should not quit. So there, I get to make this decision. We're supposed to think they're equally stubborn and crummy at romance, but Sam really needs to lighten up, in my opinion. That's what I think we could work on with the book. You can't pout every time your wife has to take a call, Sam. Her work schedule is never going to be in line with yours. You write a daily cartoon strip, for God's sake. But getting back to the song itself, uh, one of the boys is, it's a fun little hoot. It's filled with lots of phallic imagery. Bacall's telling the boys to grab their fishing rods and pull cues. Oh, it's a cornball pastrami on rye time in the theater. It sounds, again, like I'm being a twit, but I do think it's cute. Bacall gets flipped around a lot during the Tony's performance, I think at least twice. This just in, Bacall flips for Broadway. Next song. Miss Harding's office. Oh, hello, Senator. How do I think the marriage is going? Oh, six months of bliss. Absolute bliss. It isn't working. It isn't working. I get a feeling. It isn't working. She's just as charming as she can get. No, it isn't working, I bet. And yesterday morning, she got in early, spreading her charm like the plague, acting as though she's in seventh heaven that's got to be trouble with Craig. It isn't working. It isn't working. It isn't working.
I can't stress enough how much I love It Isn't Working. So I feel like in every episode, there will be a moment where I say, this is the best song in the show. Hands down, full stop, no period. Yes, queen, work, work, dance, work. Let's have a kiki. I want to have a kiki. Lock the door, it's tight. Let's have a kiki. It's my favorite song in the whole show. Ah, I do that every week. But more so than usual, this song rises to the top. It rises and it rises and it explodes in a shower of fireworks. I love it so fucking much. It isn't working. What a wonderful number. I love the upright bass at the top of the track. The The clearly defined structure that keeps bringing us back to the gloriously hectic chorus. You know, we'll have a character sort of tell the public, you know, Tess and Sam, they're doing wonderful. And then they immediately, they go back into that chorus of it isn't working. And how, by the end, I love this too, how by the end of the song, it's doubling down on its own freneticism. It makes a star out of the ensemble, allowing them to become this tumbling whirlwind of a storm that gives me goose Can you imagine staging this with a huge amount of people? It would be so much fun. Candor and Ebb validate this show's existence with this number alone. A++, no hesitation. A braggart I'm not. Right. But doesn't it show? My margin for errors exceedingly low. That's right. Oh, but it is still a tragedy. Yeah. A tragedy, Helga. An absolute tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) Four little words. Four little words. I love to say. I love to say. To brighten up. To brighten up. My darkest day. My darkest day. Are at this point. Are at this point. Quite apropos. Quite apropos. I told you so. I told you so. song called I Told You So, and it is sung by Gerald and Helga. I am still a little confused as to why Gerald and Helga are so gleeful in the wake of Tess's relationship falling apart, but it is pretty funny to hear them literally singing hee-hee-hee-hee-hee-hee-hee-hee. And for a two-minute song, it actually builds to a really nice crescendo. It uses that time very effectively, giving what could feel like a throwaway number a good pop to the ears. A good pop to the ears, by the way, is an excellent turn of phrase, and I'm going to use it more often in the future. Arr, that song's a good pop to the ears. I wrote the book on how to be cool. I wrote the book on how to be strong. I wrote the book on how to interpret the news and never be wrong. I wrote the book on how to be tough. I wrote the book on how to be terse. I wrote the book on every subtextual phrase in Eliot's verse. I wrote the book on how to have class. I wrote the book on how to have clout. I wrote the book on reading government pamphlets and doping them out. So when it comes to losing a man, you'll find it unsurprisingly Last week, I wrote that book too. When it comes to 
discussing the song, I wrote the book. I'm going to cite Sondheim's finishing the hat again. This is the second time, I believe, in this episode alone that I've referenced it. In that volume, he talks a lot about list songs and how they can be pretty limiting when it comes to advancing story and or character. I wrote the book is a good example of a not great list song, I think, because no matter how much you love Lauren Bacall, the formalized nature, the structure of the song reveals itself early on as being very repetitive and not in a not in a good bouncy way. It's just very, the pace of it, the tempo is very slow. So you kind of get lulled into complacency a little over time. You know, Tess wrote the book on blank. She wrote the book on blank, blank, blank. And she also wrote the book on how to lose a man. Got that? Great. Let's do it all over again. I wrote the book on how to be blank again and again and again. It never stops. It doesn't give Bacall much to play with, right? Beyond one note despondency. I keep saying right as if you're going to respond. Right? Right. (laughs) All right. All right. And so our attention inevitably drifts as the song drones on. It's not terrible. I don't mean to say the song is terrible, but it definitely feels like the show is marking time, stretching it out, trying to get to that two-hour-plus finish line. But enough about that song. I want to focus on uh, other songs right now. It's one of the weaker numbers. So let's talk about Happy in the Morning. Tessichka, my angel, there is something you must learn. When your work is going well, you're going to bed happy. But it's much more important to be waking up happy. Happy in the morning, laughing, joking. Happy in the morning, kissing, stroking. Ready to endure whatever lies ahead. Jumping out of bed, so happy in the early morning hour. Soaping with the loved one in the shower. Feeling in your carefree heart, you're getting off to a very good start. You can tell this song wants to indulge in sexual innuendo more than it does. And I wish it didn't drop that game so early on. I really like the lyric, you're getting off to a very good start. It's juvenile, yes, but it's a line, it's in line with the cheeky tone, I should say, established earlier by one of the boys, you know, where Bacall is talking about, you know, getting a firm grip on your fucking fishing rod. Ooh, that pool cue. Yeah, let me wax and chalk up that fucking cue. Yeah, 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 yeah. When you let that go, the only comedic angle you have in this song, Happy in the Morning, is how the song is playing on a highly generalized Russian aesthetic. It's funny because they're Russian, is on par with Helga's funny because she's German, and by that I mean they are both non-starters when it comes not good gag machines yeah not not great sometimes a day goes by one whole entire day when I don't think of her 24 hours pass I look around and find that I haven't thought of her not even when I'm somewhere we used to go not even if that someone we used to know unusual in fact I can't remember when 
the book is Tess's melancholy number. Sometimes a day goes by is Sam's opportunity uh, to wallow, to be in that same headspace. I think Sam's song is far more effective when it comes to engaging an audience, though, because we're focusing on a clear emotional state that isn't distracted by clearly curated list-making. We're focusing on the character, not the songwriter, not the lyricist and the composer. That's what Sondheim was talking about. The list song puts puts more attention on how the person behind the song is trying to be clever trying to see how many variations they can find, how many they can whip up to impress you. It's very much in the style of, you know, Cole Porter, You're the Top. You're the Top is one of the best list songs that's ever been written, and everything else kind of pales in comparison, uh, because once again, what we want to do is become invested in the characters that are being portrayed on stage. We don't want to be distracted by your uh, your witticisms, your attempts to be witty, you know. Here, in this song, you know, Sam is bombed out. We can trust this will carry us through a few minutes of stage time if the lyrics and performance are, you know, strong, if they come together, and they are. I think it's one of those songs that would work even better as an audition piece or cabaret segment, but within the context of Woman of the Year, I do appreciate how it attempts to humanize Sam. It's much more effective than some of the book moments. He's a character that is always threatening to become this wholly unlikable misogynist oaf, so he needs all the help he can get. Again, if we do that revival, the phones are open, call me, I I have written plays before, I can write a better script. I can't believe, this is not in my notes, but I I guess I'm just being arrogant enough at this point to say that I can write a revised book for Woman of the Year. So, Patty, you know, keep an eye on those phones. Keep an eye on those phones! So wonderful, you have time for luncheons. That's wonderful. What's so wonderful? First you sell the Tupperware, the public wants your autograph. That's wonderful. What's so wonderful? You raised a teenage daughter. That's wonderful. You keep your mouth shut That you squeeze the shaman That's wonderful What's so wonderful You can make a headline That's wonderful What's so wonderful I'd rather make a pot roast So go and brown an onion And have some peace and quiet
The Grass is Always Greener. Obvious follow-up, you know, runner-up for best song in the show. Love, the grass is always greener. I love all of these lyrics. Eating at the White House, that's wonderful. What's so wonderful? First, they pass the jelly beans. You can run a household, that's wonderful. What's so wonderful? First, you have a breakdown. And I also really like the lyric, Ah, the grass is always greener on somebody else's front lawn. Ah, somebody else's wiener always has a lot more relish on. Love the word wiener. Love, I love people singing the word wiener and then talking about relish. Makes you hungry. You laugh and you think, <laughs> I could go for a hot dog. Well, this is just charming as fuck, isn't it? I think it's amazing how Marilyn Cooper won the Tony for Best Featured Actress by playing Jan, a character we don't even meet until well into the show's second act. It's a testament to her comedic timing and lovability that she was able to make an impression with such a limited amount of stage time. The song is so good, we even get an old-fashioned, we're back, encore. You know, the, sh- the song presumably, ostensibly ends, but then we return for this encore that provides additional verses. The joke structure is clear from moment one, but it never gets old. What you don't get with the recording is the visual element of this pairing of Tess and Jan. Tess is supposed to read as very put-together and cosmopolitan, while Jan intentionally chooses to dress down for Tess. She is sporting this kind of ratty nightgown, and she has curlers in her hair. The women couldn't be more cosmetically different, but they can't stop praising and admiring the accomplishments of the other. Charming as fuck. P.S., there's a reference to Rona Barrett in this song that I didn't get at first. There are a lot of hypertopical 80s references throughout this show, and as I said, they do not pop and fizz in the year of our Lord 2019. But apparently, I was curious enough to find out who the hell Rona Barrett was, but apparently she was a gossip columnist who was so hated by actor Ryan O'Neill that he sent her a live tarantula in a box. A live fucking tarantula. 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 The tarantella. Mm, Nor Mm, how I long to see the Tarantella, Nora. We'll have some bad times. Probably. We'll have some rough days. Possibly. But we'll survive them. Hopefully. And easy or not, we're gonna give it a shot. to applause once already, but I realize the shows are similar in their endings as well as their beginnings. In both shows, Bacall and her male co-star vow to patch things up and march into the sunset arm in arm. The key difference is that in applause, Bacall's character abandons her career while extolling the virtues of a simpler domestic life, whereas Tess in Woman of the Year is able to pursue both professional and romantic satisfaction. I realize that gender politics in both shows don't exactly gleam in the light of today's conversations, but I appreciate uh, how by 1981, we weren't ending on this note of having a job is for the birds, just make 
make your man happy. As a finale, we're going to work it out is a little thin, as if it's checking off tick boxes in order to get to the final curtain. It's a minor disappointment, you know, since some of the other songs are so fantastic. And, you know, up until this point, the show has done a pretty good job embracing old-fashioned musical principles without coming off as, you know, completely stale. I don't want to be too hard on it, though, as a candor and ebb finale is obviously better than most. For the record, the movie ends with Gerald, you know, the secretary, Gerald showing up with a bottle of champagne, reminding Tess that she has to christen a battleship later that morning. Sam lures Gerald out onto the balcony, smashes the bottle of champagne over Gerald's head, and sends his body crashing down a flight of stairs. We don't actually see this happen, but Sam does return, holding the shattered remains of the champagne bottle. It's played for laughs. The movie is kind of fucking nuts. That's my deconstruction of the Woman of the Year score, and now it's time to hear from our lovely sponsor, 5678 Orange Grove. Take it away, 5678. Cowabunga, me bros. <laughs> What's up, cucks? It's me, Edward Hyde. That's right, the other half of Jekyll and Hyde. Whoa! What's up, Moondoggy Cucks? I'm just here to tell you a little bit about 5678 Coffee. When I'm wearing my cool shades and put my hands just slightly behind my head, my skull, my noggin, and when I'm putting my little feet up on a beach ball, giving the ladies a shout. Arr! That's what I do to them. That's my shout to the ladies. I go, and the women are going, ay, ay, ay. No, that's not what they do. Ah, problematic. <laughs> ah, but who cares? I'm Edward Hyde. So it actually kind of makes sense that I'm problematic, especially when it comes to women. And if you don't like it, you can take your cuck sensibility and shove it every bit. But back to my beach routine. So when I have my feet on that beach ball and I'm going, ah, to the ladies, do you know what is in my hand? When it, they're not behind my skull, I mean, we know what I'm not relaxing and maxing and magellan like a felon. Uh, what I do is I take my hand and I reach for a glass of 5678 Orange Grove. And I don't like it because it gives me energy. I like it because it makes me look cool. It makes me look like I'm on brand, baby. I'm cool and 5678 Orange Grove is cool as well. Calabunga, dudes. Moon doggy. Hip. Beatniks. Bongo drums. Dunk, 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 dunk. And fuck you if you don't like it. If you don't drink Orange Grove 5678, you're a fucking cuck. I bet you're offended by just about anything. Isn't that right, guitar? My guitar agrees, and you should too. So, uh, 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 I can fire myself going back into uh, my cuck of a counterpart. Uh, uh, Henry Jekyll. Whoa, 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 whoa. Getting a little Max Headroom in here. Whoa, moon doggies. Okay, so before I get completely subsumed by that fucking cuck of a loser, I'm just gonna say this. Five, six, seven, eight. You can. Count on it. Alright, see you later, cucks. Final thoughts on Woman of the Year. Woman of the Year is an underrated gem that buzzes with a number of infectious tunes and is elevated by the smoky roar of one Lauren Bacall. Is it a surefire cut to the funny bone marrow straight-A comedy? No, but it's a hearty and filling enough show, a true blue B-plus of an evening. If nothing else, I highly recommend you seek out that cast recording and listen to It Isn't Working in Full. That song is a fucking corker, my friends. Now, 1981, the show that won the award for Best Musical was 42nd Street, the adaptation of 
of the film, 42nd Street, and the other nominees from that season were Sophisticated Ladies and Tintypes. I'm obviously a fan of Woman of the Year, but I can't confidently say Candor and Ebb's show is airtight enough to walk away with the medallion. It's workmanlike, more obviously interested in wide appeal and assured profits than advancing the form, but I think all of that could be said of 42nd Street as well. No one thinks of 42nd Street as a show for the ages, do they? But it does have a thousand metric tons of tap dancing, and so I'm not surprised Tony voters were won over by this fact. Sometimes you can't ignore the siren call of a tap. I can't. I don't really like tap all that much. It's a kind of a head-patting distraction for audiences, isn't it? Oh, here you go. Here's some tap. You like tap. It's click, 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 click. You like it. My mouth. It's making all kinds of crazy sounds. Click, 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 click. Okay. So in terms of ranking the show, I'm going to put Woman of the Year in our number 10 slot. That's right between Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet of 1812 and Juan Darien, A Carnival Mass. Uh, once again, if you want to see the complete ranking, go to our Twitter profile. That's Musical Man Pod. The pinned tweet on that profile will take you to a Google Sheet. The second tab is the current ranking. We have uh, 20 shows on there at this point. 20 shows. Yes, that's right. Because uh, we have two shows in the Phantom Zone, Big Deal and James Joyce's The Dead. Of course, they're in the Phantom Zone because there's not nearly enough available material to fairly rank those shows. So, unfortunately, you know, unless someone does the work of, of reviving them somehow, they're always going to be there swirling in space, cursing the name of Superman! Ah, yes. So, show-related ephemera. I found this really fascinating clip package of rehearsal footage that's available on YouTube. Original footage from the ramp-up to the original Broadway production of Woman of the Year. This uh, footage includes the development of choreography for the number one of the boys uh, that is being led by Tony Carmoli. From the top, let's put those 60 bars together. Okay. Five, six, seven. I'm one of the girls who's one of the boys, enjoying the jokes and the smoke and the noise. Wanna go fishing? Well, hand me the reel. I made you in poker, so shut up and deal. Right. Wait, wait, wait now. So shut Major poker, so shut so some other butch move. So so shut up and do. Um, where are you going next? You gonna come down from there or not? Well, yeah, we've done it I think this is as long as this is the whole chair. Then we'll just have to so you, get her down. Right, so you should straighten up. Oh wait a minute, what's her next there? One of the gals is one of the guys, but if you're doing no life in your ass. All right. Candor and Ebb in the dance studio, playing slash singing, sometimes a day goes by at a piano. Ebb is wearing this seafoam green turtleneck that is really just astounding. And it's actually really touching. The, the two of them playing together, I really like it a lot.
discussion snippets from the casting director's office where they're talking about how easily a thousand people are going to show up for this big casting call. Right, for the beginning. That beginning there was a girl that, that uh, worked with Betty, Ed Nolfi, Ed's, uh, you know, the um, assistant right. choreographer. Ask Ed, they worked together, um, not in applause, in uh, stock. Maybe it was a wonderful town. Right. Just try, try that. Try Talk that. to Ed, see what he's got to say. Now, uh, in terms of getting the uh, space for the chorus call, we have to get a big enough space because we're probably going to have a couple thousand people show up, I've got to think, between the, you think the dancers be... and singers. I really think well, this is going to be the biggest show of the season. There's no question about it. Well, I think the call uh, is going to be enormous. Then we get footage from the original vocal and dance call, those auditions, at the Lunt Fontaine Theater. rehearsal footage of the It Isn't Working number. Now, I have no idea what the original context for all of this was, but it's engaging nonetheless. There are these slightly eerie white stars on purple backgrounds that appear between the various chunks of footage, and we sit there staring at these stars for like 11 seconds each and every time they appear. It is so weird. I feel like I'm being fed subliminal messaging. What's kind of disturbing about the whole package is how we see this particular blonde woman auditioning at one point. And then later we see her during the rehearsal of It Isn't Working. So, you know, she was cast. But there's no narration. You know, we're not getting a real narrative beyond what we can piece together for ourselves. And during the rehearsal of It Isn't Working, the camera zooms in on her as she is performing as if to say, see, 
that's the woman from earlier. It's it's this visual cue. But again, with no voiceover, zero context as to what this was meant for, it's like we've been watching the secret video recordings of a serial killer this entire time. He's always there in the room, in the casting director's office, in the dance studio. He's unseen. His camera is rolling at all times. It's creepy. Maybe this was all meant to be used as part of a news segment? No clue, but it's great. I will more than likely put it on the Twitter profile. To determine which show we discuss next, we will need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, a dirty shilling in me bright red pocket. Everyone ready? Then away we go. We have stepped off of the musical carousel, and I have determined what show we will be discussing next. It is the winner of the 1998 Tony Award for Best Musical. That's right. It's Lion King, baby! Come on! Adaptation of the animated Disney film? Huh? It's getting a big remake. This summer? Is it a Christmas film? Ah, oh, come on. I used to host a trailer show. I'm podcast all about movie trailers. I should know these things. Okay, so next week we'll be discussing The Lion King. How exciting. Perhaps I'll rewatch the original film. I have it on Blu-ray, baby. Oh, thank you for listening to the show each and every week. If you would like to financially support the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. You can sign up to donate. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. If you donate one dollar a month, you get a verbal shout out each and every week. You're going to hear your name each and every week. Like these lovely people, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. If you donate $3 a month, you get a one-time musical shout-out in the style of a character or composer of your choosing. That's right. If you donate $5 a month, you will not only be able to determine, you will get a one-time opportunity to determine which show I discuss on the podcast. You will also get access to All I Ask of You, which is a 12-episode advice show uh, hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, and it's fantastic. I, I would very much encourage you to donate $5 just for that, but uh, coming up very soon, I should have mentioned this last week, but I'm also going to be releasing for $5 and up, uh, you're going to be getting a special episode dedicated to not only, not none other than, I should say, the 73rd Annual Tony Awards. Uh, that's going to be released on June 10th, if I have my way, and so yeah, you're going to get that if you donate $5 a month, and if you donate $10 a month, you get access to the Snub Club, which is a monthly series dedicated to show that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Uh, very recently, we just had our uh, most recent episode drop that was for American Psycho. We have talked about Amelie, Merrily We Roll Along, Flahooly, American Psycho, of course, and the next uh, the next subject for June, this is going to drop on the last Wednesday of June, is going to be Be More Chill. So there you go. Uh, donations go toward the purchase of cast recordings, movie rentals, offsetting pod bean costs. If we ever get to the point where everyone is donating $100 or more in total donations, that will result in my producing M3, the movie musical man, in which I will discuss mm, trilogies of movie musicals. You can tell that I haven't had a lot of practice in really getting that pitch out there. But yeah, this very, this newly defined pitch. So yes, each and every month I will be discussing a trilogy of musicals that are movie musicals that are connected by a theme, baby, a theme. Now, if you leave a review in the iTunes store, I don't know if everybody's heard of this, but apparently iTunes is on the out. 
accounts with Apple. They're in some way discontinuing it. I don't know if this is going to completely change the way that I engage with podcasts. I have a feeling it will to some extent. hope it's not too, too great of an extent. But, you know, take the time while we still have it. Go to the iTunes store and do something really old-fashioned. Write a review in the store for the show. Uh, If you do and you let me know, I'll send you my uh, cover of Light My Candle. If you are streaming the show, you are more than likely doing that through musicalmanpod.podbean.com or Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod. And you can email us at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. I got another email from Jenna this week. Uh, She was wanting to know any thoughts that I might have on the Stephen Sondheim musical Assassins. Jenna feels that it is very underrated and it is her third favorite Sondheim show behind Sweeney Todd and Into the Woods. Well, I'll say this, Jenna. Uh, Assassins is a show that I haven't sat down with for years and years and years. I feel like the last time I sat down with a cast recording might have been during a break that I had from college. So that was easily over 10 years ago at this point. Now, my first initial thought upon getting your email was that I would be very interested in seeing what a revival of Assassins uh, would look like and what it would have to say about our current atmosphere. We're really in the thick of this very tough conversation in regards to how we are, you know, constantly frightened and put off by the fact that we are surrounded by potential domestic terrorists. You know, these men, for the most part, not for the most part, it's it's pretty much par for the course, that there are these men who harbor these feelings of rage and dissatisfaction. You know, they're fueled by racism, uh, sexism, transphobia, homophobia. It's it's disturbing to think that we are surrounded by these people at all times. And a show like Assassins, you know, we're we're contextualizing it and we're sort of narrowing the scope of the conversation to talk about people who specifically tried to assassinate presidents of the United States. But I think it would inevitably cause us to reconsider, you know, start that conversation again. What does it mean to make a show Uh, in which the stars of the show are murderers, potential murderers, attempted murderers. I had a lot of thoughts in regards to American Psycho this month when I was recording that episode for the Snub Club. I I really resented the fact that American Psycho's protagonist was this homicidal maniac who uh, killed women, and the whole point of the show is that he's white and wealthy, so he gets away with it. I think that's kind of, you know, limited, and it doesn't really have a lot to offer to us as a society. It's very superficial and service level. I think something like Assassins, if I were to revisit it, would be much more uh, thought-provoking. It would make me think more, and it has, I know for a fact, it hasn't been that long, but I know for a fact it has so much to say about, you know, minds that are poisoned by anger, poisoned by hate, to the point where they pick up a gun and they turn to violence. It has a lot more to say in regards to that subject than something like American Psycho. Even more so, one could argue, than a show like Sweeney Todd, which I have characterized as this sort of spooky haunted house tale. Uh, Sweeney Todd has a little bit to say in regards to uh, violence and how, you know, any one of us can turn to it when pushed far enough, when our, you know, our necks are stepped on often enough. But Assassins, I think, overall is much more interested in plumbing the philosophical depths of that. It's not a haunted house story. It's very much a human tale. It's it's using real world examples, right? It's not leaning on some tale, you know, like a Jack the Ripper style, a thing that you can sort of distance yourself from. It's a legend. It's a myth. 
Jeff. No, these the men in this show are, are very real. The people in this show are very real, I should say. So those are my thoughts. Uh, I would love to sit down with it again, and I think I, I shall, just based on your, uh, not, not that you suggested I do so, but in, just in talking about it, I feel like I should. So thank you very much, Jenna, for writing to me again. Thank you also to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and Zach Little for our music. That's that doorbell, baby. You know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. <laughs>